0: We are not our bank accounts. We are not our financial portfolio. And if we attach our worth to those externals, if they go away, if there's a catastrophe, that leads people
1: to feel like they're worthless. Like it or not, you, me, and everyone else, we all have a relationship with money. And for the most part, it's a complicated one. My name's Sean Maslick. Welcome to the Most Hated F-Word podcast. As a certified financial planner, I want to take you on a journey as we throw out the technical finance books and shift our focus towards our minds, our money, and what matters most. If you're looking to improve your relationship with money and build true wealth, you're in the right spot. Finances does not need to be the most hated F-word. Welcome back to the Most Hated F-word podcast. I'm glad you are with us this week as we talk to Joyce Martyr. Before we get into the wonderful conversation with Joyce, if you can spare a few minutes, please send your favorite episode or any episode to a friend, colleague, or whomever you think might enjoy our wonderful guest. And if you could go over to Apple Podcasts and leave a review, I'd greatly appreciate it. So thank you. Who is Joyce Martyr? Well, She's a psychotherapist, entrepreneur, author, and speaker who has inspired millions of people to take control and leave joyful lives. And Joyce has been a licensed clinical professional counselor since 1998. So quite some time. And during that time, she's had her own evolution with her money story. And on a professional level, she's been able to... Start and Grow Urban Balance, a counseling practice that she grew to over 100 clinicians working in 10 locations across three different states. And she was the CEO for 13 years. And recently, she sold Urban Balance to refresh mental health in 2017. And during this time, and still to this day, Joyce has done a wonderful job helping to normalize the conversation of mental health, of helping to make it easier to access services so for that Joyce I appreciate you. Joyce has appeared on tons of media outlets from Wall Street Journal, U.S. News, CNN and the list goes on and on. Today we are talking about her new book The Financial Mindset Fix. This book is great. I read this book and I really enjoyed it from the start to the finished and there's been some good attention from other authors such as Stephen Covey, Sue Pressman, and Seth Godin, who all have wonderful things to say about Joyce's new book. So what do we talk about? One of the main things that we talk about throughout the conversation is how often it's our psychological beliefs and not our technical finance knowledge that is preventing us from achieving a state of financial health or experiencing the feelings of financial health or as Joyce mentions, experiencing enoughness. Enoughness is something that really resonated with me. And we go into detail on what enoughness means and how, if at all, it relates to financial contentment. And then we start to talk about abundance. And I really appreciate Joyce's perspective on abundance because there's been times when I haven't agreed with someone's Definition or viewpoint of abundance. But Joyce takes such a compassionate and graceful view on the word abundance and it really spoke to me. And we talked more about rewriting our money stories using psychological tools such as naming our inner money critics. And in the conversation, we meet Zelda, who perhaps is one of Joyce's inner money critics. We explore the reasons why at times... We experience this paradoxical feeling of what we are showing to others and what we're actually experiencing inside and how often, without diving into the emotions behind those feelings, they can be incongruent, which affects our financial health. I hope you enjoy this wonderful conversation with Joyce Martyr. Joyce, welcome to the show.
0: Thanks so much, Sean. I'm excited to be here.
1: Yeah, I'm happy to have you. So today we're talking about your book, The Financial Mindset Fix. I really, really enjoyed this book on many different levels. And I'm excited to dive into different areas of the book, why you wrote it. And many parts spoke to me. So I'm excited for this. Thank you so much. That makes me so happy. Yeah. I I thought I'd first start with an article, though, that you wrote. So outside of the book, about how someone's experience with buying a whole whack of shoes help them to understand more of themselves and perhaps the relationship they had with their mother and money. Can we start there?
0: Yes, I love that story. Thank you. I wrote a blog for Psychology Today about money scripts and how we learn our beliefs about money from our families of origin. And as a therapist, I love to help my clients explore their psychology of money, their emotions, behaviors, and relationship with money, and how it impacts their financial reality. And my client had an aha moment where she realized that she had a bunch of ugly shoes in her closet that she hated. They were cheap shoes that she didn't feel good in. And she was like, why am I doing this? And she realized it had to do with her mother's beliefs about money. Her mother was very frugal, And my client basically took away the belief that she wasn't worth spending a lot of money on. She wasn't worth more expensive or nicer things. So she bought a ton of cheap, inexpensive shoes and felt poorly about herself when wearing them. And there's a huge connection between self-worth and net worth. And so a lot of our financial behaviors have to do with our self-esteem and our relationship with ourselves. So once this client embraced her worth, she realized that it made not only more sense for her self-esteem, but also for her financial health to buy fewer shoes and nicer shoes that she felt great in. So it's a light example of dynamics we probably all experience in different ways.
1: I appreciate the lightness, but yet, I guess, depth of the message behind it. And I think, I mean, I speak from experience, it might not be shoes, but we all have our own shoes to add to the story. And this idea of money scripts and our relationship with money, it's something that I kind of, I really want to focus on. And I think your book does such a great job doing that. From your experience, perhaps personal, through your research, through your professional work, when you said she started working through that to build her self-esteem, and that's a big thing, self-esteem, for people listening, we might feel like our our, our rack of shoes is too big or... I try to reframe it or I try to work on those beliefs that are underlying it and it might work for a week or two but then uh, Amazon shows up with a whole bunch of more shoes. What would you say to someone who's aspiring to work through these behavioral beliefs that are really really keeping them stuck and you know to your point of the story if it goes way back to beliefs that we had with our parents. What would you say to someone who's saying I'm trying to reduce the shoes but it's hard?
0: It is hard sometimes to make those lasting changes. And of course, I'm biased as a therapist, but I think we can all benefit from therapy or counseling or some sort of deeper self-reflective practice. My book is a program with practical tools and techniques proven from psychology, as well as exercises to help the reader really practice these skills. And just like therapy is a practice, I have a practice of psychotherapy, mindfulness is a practice, yoga is a practice, financial health is a practice. It's not light switch that you flip it's a skill that you have to consciously pay attention to and hone and develop and so i love empowering readers to do just that
1: as you work through your book i like how you've laid it out where there's little therapy session there's an example and then the end there's usually a good actionable step people can take but as you were saying the word practice something i do want to say is i can imagine it was nice to have seth godin who wrote the book practice blurb your book so uh well done there, but I, I appreciate how you use the word practice because I think that's my background is more of a financial planner or not more. It is. And I've been curious with the beliefs that drive the decisions that we're trying to get the clients to change, which is an oversight in our industry. But I like the word use practice because what I've noticed is this is a practice and it's, it's a journey without a top, so to speak, if you're looking at a mountain. So thanks for using that word practice. There's a quote or a section of your book that really stuck out to me and you, you quoted Rumi and it was it's easier to look outside than inside. I think on so many different levels that can resonate with people. But in your book, you talk about a time when you were eight years old. So if, you, if you're okay with it, I'd like to go back to this story you talk about in the book. When you're eight years old, you tell a story about how you've been moving around. Your dad has been having multiple layoffs. He was experiencing some depression of of his own. And you have this quote that I thought was really interesting of what you were thinking at that time. And it says, I wasn't sure what was our financial reality, the somewhat opulent one that people saw on the outside or the scary and shameful one I felt on the inside. And before I actually ask the question, I think that's a feeling so many people have, but perhaps we just haven't felt or spent the time to feel that. So thank you for putting that in your book. My question is, At what point in your life, if at all, did you realize that the impact of these childhood experiences were actually playing out in your money story as an aspiring adult as you progressed into your career?
0: Yes, absolutely. You brought up so many different layers to that story. And to start with, my father was born during the Great Depression. So he had a lot of financial anxiety and a scarcity mindset, despite having put himself through college. He ended up getting his MBA from Harvard. He was the youngest division president of General Motors, had a very successful career. But in the automotive industry recession of the 1980s, he was laid off repeatedly and dealt with clinical depression. So much of his self-esteem and self-worth was tied with his work. And as a kid, I was happy to have him at home more. And when I said that to him, he cried. And it was the first time I saw my father cry, big six foot two guy, and I was scared. And I internalized a lot of financial anxiety because there was a lot of stress in our home. My my older siblings were in college. My parents were struggling to pay for school, keep our house, keep our lifestyle. And I... Learned to sort of not spend money, make myself small, hide purchases. It definitely impacted my feelings of worth and and stability and security. It also empowered me or motivated me to earn money myself. And my father was a positive example in that way. He uh, he became a, a very successful investor as well. So I come from a lot of privilege that I I definitely recognize and many of my clients have come from very hard financial trauma and that impacts us in different ways. It's really important to honor that. As an entrepreneur, I realized that my self-esteem was manifesting in a way where I was putting Needs of others before myself in every way. So my clients, my staff, my family, my kids, and I became exhausted and depleted. And I ended up in extreme financial stress. I ended up having a huge amount of debt and I was in cash flow hell. And this was during another recession during, uh, oh eight when the housing market crashed and it was terrifying. I dealt with paralyzing financial anxiety, insomnia, panic attacks. And it was then that I chose to emancipate myself from it. I had no other choice. So I practiced what I preach and I used tools that I learned from my clinical training to help me dig out of that crisis and move forward. And those are the tools that I share in my book. I also share a lot of lessons I learned from the wisdom of my clients. And I hope that it helps other people turn the ship around. I'm so grateful to the people who helped me. I think support is a huge aspect of success in life and financially. And I was able to successfully sell the business Seven years after this crisis, for more money than I dream, ever dreamed I would make in a lifetime. I started it with $500 and 50,000 of student loan debt. I had a lien on my home and was successfully able to sell it for millions of dollars. So I believe that anything is possible. If Mm -hmm. I can do it, you can too. And I want to support other people in manifesting their dreams personally, professionally, and financially.
1: I appreciate first of all you you saying things like I learned to hide, to be small, and also to even just just to self-disclose the difficulties financially, like the crippling anxiety, like to use your words. As a therapist saying those words, I think it normalizes to many people that finances can be at times very crippling. And I think it's it's healthy for people like yourselves to be an advocate to being like it's, you know. I felt it. Other people feel it. And, uh, you know, if we start feeling this, perhaps we can move to the other side. The two things that I just talked about make me think of a quote that I actually had written down. And so we first talked about, you know, that as a child, you were confused on is it the, what people are seeing on the outside of what people are is or should you be showing up what you're feeling on the inside? But then fast forward in your 30s and you have a successful like business, so to speak. I know there's financial anxiety but on the outside, someone might look at this as a, a successful business, but inside you're, you're, you're using words like it was financially crippling. The quote I have is sometimes we unconsciously recreate the familiar. We have this situation where you have the inside and outside, two different things as a kid. And then it seems like it follows you all the way to the, in your thirties. Can you expand on that, that unconsciously recreating the familiar and how can our money scripts tend to do that to us? Sean,
0: you're, Good. You're an honorary therapist. You just <laughs> identified my root issue and how I recreated it. You articulated that beautifully. And you're you're absolutely right. It's it's something we do as part of the human condition. And we unconsciously gravitate to roles and relational patterns that we learned in our families of origin and earlier life experiences. So I I explain in the book that depending on our birth order and what's going on in our families, we play a role just like you do in any group or any system. And each role in a family is like part of the machine. And we're comfortable in that role. It's familiar to us. And so we gravitate to partners, friends, and even jobs that recreate that role. So in my family of origin, I was a mediator, I was uh, sort of a cheerleader for people and I recreated that role in my work as a therapist. So becoming conscious of what parts of our roles serve us well and what parts don't is something that I definitely do with my clients, helping them not only be the protagonist of their own life story, but also the author to empower themselves to change those behavioral patterns that are no longer serving them, and to really separate their worth from their externals. So you, you said that Rumi quote, people come into therapy, they want the perfect job, they want the perfect body, they want the perfect ba- bank account and relationship, and that's all external. When we do our inner work and we really connect with our deepest, highest self, and we start to live our life in a way that is congruent with our, our heart and our soul, our lives transform. And that's why I love this work. And my favorite thing is to mirror back to clients all that it's beautiful and amazing about them and supporting them and living a greater life, really expanding their comfort zones and welcoming a life of greater abundance.
1: Mm. What? exercise out of the book would you say would help? They all help, but specifically to what we're talking about here of trying to change those old patterns. And you have so many good tools. Is there one that's coming to mind that you would recommend if someone's like, yeah, I, I hear this, I want this, and I want to have that change, but I need something to give me some like positive momentum to move forward?
0: So in my book, I have a bunch of exercises that are based from cognitive behavioral therapy. And CBT is one of the most empirically supported forms of therapy that asserts that our thoughts precede our emotions and behaviors. So I noticed in my practice that clients who had self-limiting beliefs ended up self-sabotaging and not succeeding in their lives in the way that they wanted to. So my job as a therapist was to help them become aware of their self-talk and that self-limitation and rewrite those scripts. So thought records is one of the exercises I have in my book where you identify negative thinking and you consciously restructure those thoughts. So instead of saying, I share in the book that I set my own ceilings with my salary um, by setting benchmarks that were kind of low. And it wasn't until I became aware that I was creating my own reality with through self-fulfilling prophecy that I started to expand that thinking. Like, what if I what if I could make millions? And some of us have beliefs like thinking that money is, having money is greedy or selfish that unconsciously stop us from having more. But I come from the mindset that when we have more, we can help more.
1: The thought records were, were I, I remember reading those and, the other thing that I thought was neat when you were talking about like CBT in the book and just the the, the empirical evidence narrative, I don't know if they're in the same chapter, but narrative psychology. So writing a narrative of what you're aspiring to do, I think is such a, a powerful exercise that allows us to start changing the thoughts part. I, I feel like at times, and especially with some clients that I've dealt with is like, you know, think positive is such a big thing. And, in your book, you talk about you have a section on positivity, and I'm actually doing a master's in positive psychology, and I really believe in the, the science of positive psychology. But my question for you is when we're dealing with money or, or anything, when we're trying to change that, the, the behaviors by going into our thinking, like the CBT model, I feel like at times I've seen people who've been able to change the thinking, but the belief hasn't changed. And they get into this like toxic positivity state or this idea of being like, I'm happy. But underneath, it's just like the belief is still just dragging them down. Based on your experience, what would you say to someone who's, again, aspiring to do this work of being careful not to just put on a smile? Because I think we, can, we know that that actually can harm someone more. But on the other side, it's so powerful to do these positive narrative stories and envision yourself in the future. So I guess my question is, how do we find the balance of trying to do these positive exercises and have that positive effect moving forward, but also be mindful. We don't want to dismiss that underlying belief.
0: Yes, great question. So I have a chapter about presence and I'm a big believer in mindfulness practices and our feelings are waves of emotion that we experience in the body. And mindfulness practices like meditation, deep breathing and yoga, get us out of our head and into our body, into a deeper awareness and consciousness and so we need to practice self-compassion we need to honor our emotions especially our negative emotions as a normal response to everything that we've been through to really allow ourselves to feel those feelings and uh, process them and so you know we want to honor and embrace the hardships that we've been through and the challenges and maybe some of those deeper belief systems that are difficult to change, while also working on the positive thinking. So it, it is really both. And the, the positive thinking allows us to expand what we think
1: is possible. You said the word self-compassion there. And as a trained certified financial planner, I've done extensive amounts of training in the technical side of financial planning. And I can't tell you ah the impact self-compassion has had on my financial life, my, fin- my money story even compared to all the technical things that I know. And that self-compassion, I just think is so critical and so hard. And for me, I guess, I started to identify the the value of self-compassion when I started look, working through my own money story and what was my inner child, so to speak, that was holding me small. And it's interesting that in your book, you bring up uh, Penny. And, and I believe that was a, a character in your life that you identified to in your early 30s. And it reminded me of my character, who I call Mr. Shy, who was holding me as um, plain small and thinking that he was afraid. And it's, uh, I was really shy as a kid growing up. So he was defending me. But as an adult, he was no longer doing a good job. So can you talk about Penny, who she was, and what significance did she have on your financial life? And if so, how did self-compassion maybe help nurture her as you True.
0: Yes. So I think there's two characters. So Penny was what I named my financial life when I was in my 30s. And I had an abusive relationship with her. I neglected her. I was ashamed of her. I didn't take care of her. And that impacted my my financial life. So I encourage people to name their financial life and, and think about it as if they're a person and imagine that relationship. So today I have... Prosperity, who is my financial life today, and I value her and see her as a direct reflection of myself. But I think you're referring to my inner saboteur, which I named Zelda. So we all have that inner critic who is that voice in our head that puts us down, that has fear-based thinking or causes us self-limitation. And I recommend naming your inner critic as a mindfulness practice to realize how destructive those negative thoughts and that negative voice is in your life and to choose to separate yourself from that part, to turn down the volume on that part and instead cultivate a different voice, a voice of self-compassion. And so learning to be your own loving parent and take care of yourself as you would somebody who you love very much, learning how to be your own best friend, to advocate for yourself and cut yourself some slack. And also to be your own most compassionate advocate. When we can shift from that negative voice to that more self compassionate and positive and loving voice, we can really transform our lives personally and financially.
1: Yeah, so with Zelda, um, does does the voice ever go away, or is it a matter of learning to dance with it? And I, I asked this because I think it back to our shoe, what we opened up. I, I feel like that's a version of whatever the the gals Zelda would be is always not always. I don't know. I'm curious if it's always playing in her mind, even if we start doing the work. So is this a dancing thing, or can we actually just remove Zelda?
0: I don't know anyone who's completely removed their inner saboteur. I think it's part of the human condition. But I I feel like I've told Zelda to step aside. Mm. And I notice her, like, I get nervous before every speaking engagement or every media gig still because I have Zelda in my head saying, don't mess up, Mm. (laughs) don't embarrass Mm -hmm. yourself. (laughs) And I'll be very unhelpful telling me I don't look right and all these things. But I think through exposure therapy, by <laughs> telling her to step aside and doing it anyway, I've gotten stronger. So that's all each of us can do.
1: Yeah, I think I, I appreciate that answer because it's no, you know, it's not perfect. It's going to be there. It's how do we learn to, yeah, just exist together, which makes me again go into another part of your book where you really talked about detaching and detaching from fear, and I think. As I've tried to embrace more reflection and you talk a lot about yoga and I, I tried to do yoga and I've always told myself you're too inflexible and you can't, but I really see the value of like putting that space between like what Victor, Victor Frankl would say, stimulus and response, yoga and mindfulness really, really, again, as a financial planner, it's so much more powerful to put mindfulness techniques. I feel than research what's the best rate of return for whatever portfolio. But as we aspire to do this work, like the difficult work, and I think there's always quick fix, like get rich quick. And your book is not called Get Rich Quick, which I, which I appreciate. But as we aspire to do this work, we know it's challenging. And as we aspire to try to understand ourselves on a deeper level, like you really walk people through in your book, what would you say on this idea of detaching ourselves and trying to remove those elements of fear as we navigate our money stories and, yeah, and our, our prosperous life?
0: Well, we all deal with what I term FUD in the book, fear, uncertainty, and doubt. And especially in these times with the pandemic, uncertainty is something that causes us to have a lot of fear and anxiety. And so detachment is a mindfulness practice. I'm not talking about not caring or being in denial or dissociating or being aloof some way. It's about healthy emotional separation from fear. And so. You and I both know William Green, author of Mm -hmm. Richer, Happier, Wiser, and he talks about equanimity, that he saw that when he interviewed successful investors, they had emotional calm and emotional regulation, and that requires some healthy detachment. You have to be able to zoom out when you make an investment and tolerate the doubts and know that in the end you're going to be okay, you know, but not just to kind of ride all those ups and downs and and in business, you need to develop some risk tolerance, and so you have to be able to detach from the anxiety of all the what ifs and so it's about using some psychological tools from mindfulness to really uh, connect with that deeper self, and I, I. Yeah, you're right. Yoga might not be for everyone, but I encourage you to try even restorative yoga mm-hmm. or some of the the more basic practices. It is a practice that teaches resilience. That you know that when you connect with the breath and you're in a difficult moment, a difficult pose of uncomfort, when you connect with the breath, you can trust that the moment will pass. And in the end, you'll be stronger, more balanced, and more flexible.
1: Mm-hmm. And you know, despite having unflexible hips, I know I should still do. Yeah, there's many different forms of yoga, which actually, as you, as you said that, I'm like, geez, that's just me being defensive. And I, uh, you talked about like defense mechanisms in your book. What really spoke to me actually, because as I try to gain more clarity of my relationship with money, I'm trying to do some work and Brene Brown had once said something and I heard a story of you talking about Brene Brown and you want to be like Brene Brown's book. And then you got, I think the same publishing company. So that's phenomenal. But uh, she had said that we rarely do we escape childhood without some form of trauma. And I think for me, defensiveness of my nature would be like trauma. No, I don't have trauma. And and like my childhood is great. I, I didn't have you know, big T trauma, so to speak. However, this idea of being shy, now that I'm understanding it, I had a lot of coping mechanisms. I'm thinking about this defensiveness because of the yoga comment, but also in our financial lives, and I speak for myself, is that I was very defensive. I still am. It waffles. I I try to get better, but because my inner child, this Mr. Shy, kept saying like, no, you need to make money. You need to do this. You need to uh not spend money on your utility bill, because that's going to make you feel less than because you've equated money to power and power gives you your voice heard. And if you spend your money, you're you're diminishing yourself. And when I married my wife, or when we started to, to combine her money, I was super defensive. I would be like, oh, no, no. And she'd be like making an observation towards me. And I'd be defensive, like, no, no, no. And it occurred to me that it's just this inner child really talking. So I guess I want to shift it to you here. In that section, you talked about defense mechanisms and denial. How have you seen it either show up for yourself or your clients impacting our ability to have this or aspire towards this healthy relationship with money?
0: Oh my gosh. Denial is probably the most dangerous defense mechanism when it comes to finances. So, so many people stick their heads in the sand and I did myself. I didn't seek proper business and financial consultation because I was afraid that someone would tell me that my business model didn't work. So I stuck my head in the sand until I was in a dire situation. So denial can cause us fear or it's a way of dealing with fear that can cause us great financial hardship and many people don't know what their debt is they don't know what their credit card balances are they don't know what their interest rates are they haven't become financially literate or empowered themselves to take action they have these negative voices i had a client who said i why should we talk about money? I don't have any, (laughs) you know? So we have that, those defense mechanisms, rationalization, intellectualization. Sometimes we blame others. We displace our feelings of disempowerment on others and we blame others for our financial struggles. And it sounds like you were dealing with some rigidity, some Mm -hmm. psychological rigidity. And when we become defensive, which is, normal. We all do. It's part of the human condition, but it's letting us know that we're hitting up against something we probably need to pay attention to. And so it's important to take an honest look at ourselves and explore why we're being defensive. And when we do that, we can emancipate ourselves from that way of limiting ourselves and Open ourselves up to different ways of thinking, more information, becoming more flexible and adaptable, and open. And you know, in terms of spending versus saving, I believe in flow. That we want to have healthy flow, like breath and and love are flows of energy. So is money, and there needs Mm -hmm. to be a healthy balance. And we need sometimes we need to let it go, or we need to invest in order for it to come back to us even greater.
1: You use the word flow, which uh I can't remember where I heard this, but someone said, read it somewhere. It's like, you never own money. You just borrow it until it flows out of your pocket. <laughs> I have two different areas I want to go to, and I'm going to make a decision. Uh the Abundance, actually. So you talk a lot about abundance and... Let's start there, actually. I got a follow-up question. But abundance to you, what does that mean in our financial lives, and our stories? We try to navigate all these crazy emotions that are attached to our money and the stories we tell ourselves.
0: So to me, abundance is a psycho-spiritual word. And the meaning to me of it is living a greater life. Like imagining if you have a light inside of you turning up the brightness to the biggest extent possible, expanding your life. So an abundant life is one where you have mental well-being, and you have supported, connected, meaningful relationships. You have a sense of purpose in the world. You have work-life balance and financial prosperity. And when we welcome abundance, it doesn't mean that someone else has less. It means that we're generating more and we can lift others up. The scarcity mindset is the opposite of abundance. It's this idea that we have to be competitive over resources and that if we have more, someone else has less. And that gets in our way. So I talk about having an abundance mindset. Uh, Scarcity mindset is like the toilet paper thing Mm. where people became, competitive over resources out of fear of lack. And abundance is the belief that there's more than enough joy, love, health, happiness, support, and money for all of us. And when we have that mindset, we can be collaborative, we can be creative, we can be open, we can be generative. And so I definitely have an entrepreneurial spirit and I believe in, you know, by creating a new company, it creates new jobs. It, it created more services for clients. And so it's a spiritual web of helping not only myself, but, but many, many people who become part of that system, if that makes sense.
1: Mm-hmm. I noticed the, the tone in your voice changed when you answered that question to, uh, I don't know if it was more excitement, but I, I've heard you talk a lot about it on different interviews I've heard and in your book. And the other word I hear you said multiple times in this conversation and in your book is joy. What's the significance of joy to you? And what does it mean to you?
0: Again, to me, I think that's psycho-spiritual. And what I mean by that is if you believe we're mind, body, and spirit, I think so much of our lives is both our mind and our spirit. It's a the holistic view of success. And joy to me is when you are aligned with your authentic self or your essence, and you are celebrating your life and, and expressing your voice and sharing your unique gifts in the world in a way that is meaningful and connecting, that that elation that comes with that is a spiritual process. And when we get in that flow state... Of being ourselves and expressing our gifts, we are manifesting abundance and we're sharing that with others. We become a lighthouse for others to do the same.
1: Yeah. I really appreciate your your answer to that. And there has been times where, as I'm saying this, I'm realizing it's my defensiveness coming up, but uh, (laughs) where I've heard people talk about abundance and I'm like, "Hmm, what do you mean abundance? And I've never actually asked someone like that. So I appreciate your answer because I I totally agree with you. And I, I like this idea that it's not like extraction. One, take one from another and now I'm better or like uh, there's not a limited source from what I'm hearing of abundance for everyone. And, and so m- my question was going to be this and it might not be a relevant question anymore because I think I've got the answer, but I want to hear your perspective. When we talk about abundance and then this idea of contentment when we look at our financial lives, in my head, what I was preparing this question was like, can I be overabundant? which is actually contrary to being content, but I'm not hearing that anymore. So, but I would like to get your perspective on like the balance of having both contentment and abundance.
0: Yes, that's a wonderful question. So to me, we are all innately deserving of abundance and that is on a soul level. Okay. Our ego is our mind's understanding of ourselves. And our ego is what becomes defensive. Our ego is what, Houses our, our inner saboteur, and our essence, our authentic self, our deeper self, is our soul or spirit, however you want to look at that. And when we are, are separating from ego and we connect with our deeper essence, we know that we are enough and that we have enough, and we experience enoughness. We are not our bank accounts. We are not our financial portfolio. And if we attach our worth to those externals, if they go away, if there's a catastrophe, then that leads people to feel like they're worthless. And 16% of suicides are financially driven, which is devastating. We need to know that we are always worthy, regardless of our financial situation. And that is contentment. And I'm not talking about materialism or greed. You know, it's not about having abundance so you can have an insane amount of possessions. It's about having financial peace and prosperity. And maybe so you can be a philanthropist or give to mm-hmm. charities or do important work in the world, create positive change. So enoughness is a psycho-spiritual concept of, of contentment, of knowing that you are absolutely okay just the way that you are and anything external is not going to fill you. That's something that comes internally.
1: And in essence, then, could that be described as what well, you're saying, abundance, if I have that mentality? It's not necessarily having all this abundant amount of stuff come towards me.
0: Absolutely. I think of a client of mine who is 65. She's disabled. She has not properly saved for retirement. She is one of the best examples of an abundant mindset. And she, mm-hmm. she lives her life. She calls it fierce joy with fierce joy. And she's an incredible trauma survivor. She's so inspiring. She looks at the sky, the clouds, her flowers in her yard, her dog, her healthy body, and gives thanks for all of those gifts and and sees herself as having abundance, even though she doesn't have a lot financially.
1: It makes me think of, uh, I don't know if it's that gal, but someone in your book, I can't remember who, but someone said, I'll have more than... or." I have something that you don't have is enough. Yes. Isn't that a good story? Mm -hmm. Maybe just elaborate a little bit on that story for listeners. It's like, what are you talking about? I think we can draw the parallels together, but...
0: Yes. So it's sort of like a parable about two men. And one man is very successful and the other man has less financial success. And the less successful man says to the other one, but I have something that you'll never have. And the more wealthy man says, what could that possibly be? And he replies, enough. Which when we feed our egos, we strive for more, more affirmation, more validation, more stuff to tell us that we're important. That's ego-driven behavior, But when we are connected with our deeper essence and our deeper worth, we don't have that same need because we're content in who we are. And so, again, I believe that when we generate abundance and financial prosperity, it doesn't only help us, it helps others because then we can be of service in a greater way. So I think shifting, you know, some people, when I was interviewed by my publisher, uh, sounds true. Tammy Simon interviewed me for her podcast. And she said, Well, what about people who say, I have enough? I don't need all that. I say, you know, that's that's fine. That's if that's your choice. But I think that when we we grow and expand and we welcome more into our lives, we can help so many more people, our loved ones, our communities and our families and the world around us. So it's really a I think more compassionate to grow <laughs> so that you can bring your gifts to others. We're in such a time of struggle right now and we, everyone needs support and help. And if you can give that, what an amazing gift.
1: Mm-hmm. Your stories is reminding me of myself because I'm listening to it, but I feel that my ego is taking over this conversation by wanting to say something, but I'm going to let him do his thing. So my background, I'm a financial planner. I I hired a business coach like five years ago because now what I realized, my ego wanted to continue to be to grow, and, or like the external world. To Rumi's thing, wanted, I want that to grow so that it made my inner money child feel heard and seen and valued. Because people are like, oh wow, Uh, look what you're doing. Oh, look how busy you are. And another thing you touch on the book is busyness, and oh, that spoke to me. And I was always busy because I was being busy doing things, so I didn't have to feel things. And so I hired this guy five years ago. I went into it extremely ego-driven. Now I can reflect on that. Being like, I want to grow, 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 grow. And over the last five years, all of a sudden we start, never talked about making more money. We've been talking about emotions and feelings for the last five years. And I'm like, what has happened? But I learned that my money story drove me to seek out this guy so that I could try to make more money to make my inner child be heard. And in that process, I've completely changed the meaning I've given to my money story into a way now that allowing me to speak to the people like you have a podcast where we have thousands of listeners who are writing in saying how much they appreciate the people that we bring on like yourself. So your, your statement has really made me think of my own journey. And my question to you though, is if we aspire to decrease the defensiveness to say that perhaps there's some pain or some fear, because I know for me, I felt like there was none, but that was maybe defensive. And if I lean into that fear and that pain. And and I think money can drive it. Like, I think money is a window into ourselves that allows us to open up to so many other things that we learn about ourselves. So I guess, what would you say? This is almost a commercial for doing the work in your book. What would you say to people who are like, eh, I'm good. Like, it's good. I don't got nothing going on there. What would you offer to them to say about just peeking in to see if you can learn something about yourself by leaning into that potential fear?
0: Oh my goodness, I think that when we do our inner work, it can transform our lives in so many amazing ways that we don't know until we give that a chance. And your story of focusing on the externals, and I I appreciate your honesty around that, and I think many of us can relate to that. It reminds me what financial planner and advisor Susie Orman said. And she said that she noticed in her practice that self worth leads to net worth, but that net worth does not lead to self worth. I thought that was interesting. And I've found that to be true that when we embrace our inner worth, we welcome this greater prosperity. But if we do it the other way around, like you were doing it, it's never enough. Because that's ego driven, but you've done a lot. I mean, I've, I've listened to your podcast. I've read about you and your work and getting your master's in positive psychology. You've obviously reflected a lot about your own psychology and your own journey. And that has expanded your work and your success. So I encourage each of us. I think we all, you know, again, unconsciously recreate the familiar until we become aware and we choose something better. Mm-hmm. So there's something better out there for everyone. Yeah.
1: yeah. Well, I, I'm looking at the time, and I really appreciate this conversation. And I want to give you some time to talk about your book and where people can find it. But I, I really have to say that I started reading it, and because I want to be prepared for the uh, our conversation, then I was like, "Holy smokes!" I'm, this is myself in here, and I <laughs> and I really found a lot of value. So I really encourage people to to get the book. It's a deep read. It's a, lots of deep thinking, which I think is the work that's required. So before we go into there, my question for you now is let's pretend um, you're anywhere in the world, you're at life end, uh, end of life, uh, whatever age that is, and you decide to write a letter to your children's children about what you learned to have a healthy relationship with money. What would be some themes in that letter?
0: To know that they're deserving, they're deserving of prosperity to embrace their unique gifts and align them with a need in the world and to the greatest extent possible to detach from fear, to trust in their path and that, you know, I believe in them. I support them to surround themselves with people who love them, care about them, challenge them and lift them up and to never stop learning and growing and reflecting we evolve. And I believe that evolution continues until we, we pass. And it's a journey and one to take very, very seriously. Life is such a gift and and to not mute yourself or live a smaller version of your life that you deserve that abundant life.
1: Hmm, thank you. That detaching fear, oh, it, it speaks to me. And I, I appreciate how You're saying not like removing fear or eliminating fear. It's detaching, and let them coexist individually. Well, thank you so much. Yeah. What would you say to listeners about your book, about the work you're doing, where people find you?
0: My website is joycemartyr.com, J-O-Y-C-E-M-A-R-T-E-R. The book is The Financial Mindset Fix. It's on Amazon. It's on Audible. It is going to be published in Spain and China and uh, Korea. So I'm excited about that. I do a, a lot of national public speaking, keynoting, corporate training, and love to share what I've learned. And the book has a lot of practical tools and exercises. I've had um, some financial planners read it. I just had the head of a CFO organization say he found it really helpful. His review is on Amazon. So check it out and follow me on social media. I'd love to connect with you.
1: Well, thank you so much for joining me today.
0: Thanks so much, Sean.
1: Thank you for tuning in to another episode of the Most Hated F Word podcast. I really hope you're enjoying these episodes as much as I am. Until next week, have yourself a good one.